Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, this is TLS Voices. I'm Alan Jenkins. My subject is war and the pity of war. The poetry is in the pity. That was the declaration with which Wilfred Owen, by common consent, the finest English poet of the First World War, presented his poems to the world. The power of those poems, and of others, by poets such as Siegfried Sassoon, Isaac Rosenberg and Ivor Gurney, is such that it is precisely the pity and pathos they express that we now, 100 years later, almost automatically feel in connection with the Great War and its poetry. But there were other ways of seeing the war, and among those who distilled their experience of it into words, one of the most interesting was T.E. Hume. Hume is not known principally as a poet of war, or perhaps even as a poet at all, despite having written, according to T.S. Eliot, two or three of the most beautiful short poems in the language. Hume called himself a philosophic amateur, and in his lifetime was admired by Eliot and others for his essays and lectures on art, and for polemical writings in which he excoriated the romantic and liberal belief in progress. Nevertheless, Hume thought it self-evident that all men are equal, and that democracy, however repugnant he found it in some ways, was worth defending. In championing the work of avant-garde artists such as Jacob Epstein or David Bomberg, his overriding concern was to make their art intelligible to anyone, the man in the street included. Hume's friend and sometimes rival in love, Wyndham Lewis, recalled that all his life Hume retained his nagging, nasal, north country voice, which induced in the listener an overwhelming sensation of the cussedness of things. Cussedness was very much Hume's style, along with pugnacity in argument, and on occasion a relish for physical violence. He is said to have carried around a knuckle-duster made for him by the sculptor Henri Gaudier-Brejka. He was sent down from Cambridge for general loutishness. But after wanderings in Canada and Europe, settled in London, and did what all young poets like to do, form into a gang with other young poets. In Germany, he had befriended the Georgians, Rupert Brooke and Harold Monroe. Hume and his gang, though, seemed to have been the first to arrive at the kind of poetry or at least the poetic principles that were taken over by Ezra Pound and developed into imagisme, 
Everything then was better in French. As a proto-imagist, Hume demanded an end to post-romantic vagueness. Poems should aim to achieve a vivid descriptive clarity, their import conveyed through images, an accidentally seen analogy or unlooked-for resemblance. They should do without abstractions, poetic diction and worn-out metres. Hume's poems, of which he published only six in his lifetime, are also very brief, wistful, occasionally whimsical, and indeed, as Eliot said, very beautiful. Here is Above the Dock. Above the quiet dock in midnight, tangled in the tall mast's corded height, hangs the moon. What seemed so far away is but a child's balloon, forgotten after play. The Man in the Crow's Nest. Strange to me sounds the wind that blows by the masthead in the lonely night. Maybe it is the sea whistling, feigning joy to hide its fright, like a village boy that shivering past the churchyard goes. And a city sunset. Alluring, earth-seducing, with high conceits is the sunset that coquettes at the end of westward streets. A sudden flaring sky, troubling strangely the passerby, with vision alien to long streets of Cytherea or the smooth flesh of Lady Castlemaine. A frolic of crimson is the spreading glory of the sky, heaven's wanton flaunting a trailed red robe along the fretted city roofs about the time of homeward-going crowds, a vain maid lingering, loath to go. When war came, Hume was clear that it was a necessity, if a stupid one. Fighting wars was, he said, as useless and as necessary as repairing sea walls. This kind of stoic pessimism served him well as an infantry private, where other poets and artists saw in the war the destruction of everything they held dear. Hume saw his worldview and his beliefs vindicated. He was wounded, recovered and returned to the front as an officer in the Royal Marine Artillery. This ought to have been safer, but there was never any question of not returning to the fighting at all. From time to time, as he put it, great and useless sacrifices become necessary, merely that whatever precarious good the world has achieved may just be preserved. Hume made the ultimate sacrifice in September 1917, blown to bits by a direct hit from a shell. He was 34. He had by then put the imagist precepts to good use in his remarkable poem, Trenches, Saint-Eloi. Pound claimed to have transcribed and abbreviated it from Hume's conversation. It may in fact have been dictated by Hume to his lover, Kate Lechmere. Trenches, Saint-Eloi. Over the flat slopes of Saint-Eloi, a wide wall of sandbags. Night. In the silence, desultory men pottering over small fires, cleaning their mess tins. To and fro from the lines, men walk as on Piccadilly, making paths in the dark, through scattered dead horses, over a dead Belgian's belly. The Germans have rockets. The English have no rockets. Behind the line, cannon, hidden, lying back miles. Beyond the line, chaos. My mind is a corridor. The minds about me are corridors. Nothing suggests itself. There is nothing to do but keep on. He had also addressed a number of virulently erotic and moving letters to Kate Lechmere, 
and to his Staffordshire relatives the more restrained and unillusioned series of dispatches that were published after his death as Diary from the Trenches. February 10th. Towards the end of the same day, the Germans started to shell our trench. It was a dangerous trench for shelling because it was very wide, so gave no protection to the back. Our NCO told us to shift to a narrower part of the trench. I got separated from the others in a narrow communication trench behind with one other man. We had seen shells bursting fairly near us before, and at first did not take it very seriously. But it soon turned out to be very different. The shells started dropping right on the trench itself. As soon as you had seen someone hurt, you began to look at shelling in a very different way. We shared this trench with the regiment. About ten yards away from where I was, a man of this regiment had his arm and three-quarters of his head blown off, a frightful mess, his brains all over the place, some on the back of that man who stands behind me in the photograph. The worst of shelling is, the regulars say, that you don't get used to it, but more and more alarmed at it every time. At any rate, the regulars in our trenches behaved in rather a strange way. One man threw himself down on the bottom of the trench, shaking all over and crying. Another started to weep. It lasted for nearly one and a half hours, and at the end of it, parts of the trenches were all blown to pieces. It's not the idea of being killed that's alarming, but the idea of being hit by a jagged piece of steel. You hear the whistle of the shell coming. You crouch down as low as you can and just wait. It doesn't burst merely with a bang. It has a kind of crash with a snap in it, like the crack of a very large whip. They seem to burst just over your head. You seem to anticipate it killing you in the back. It hits just near you and you get hit on the back with clods of earth and, in my case, spent bits of shell and shrapnel bullets fall all around you. I picked up one bullet almost sizzling in the mud just by my toe. What irritates you is the continuation of the shelling. You seem to feel that 20 minutes is normal, is enough. But when it goes on for over an hour, you get more and more exasperated, feel as if it were unfair. Our men were, as it happened, very lucky. Only three were hurt slightly and none killed. They all said it was the worst experience they've had since they were out here. I'm not in the least anxious myself to repeat it. Nor is anyone else, I think. It was very curious from where I was. Looking out and over the back of the trench, it looked absolutely peaceful. Just over the edge of the trench was a field of turnips or something of that kind with their leaves waving about in a busy kind of way, exactly as they might do in a back garden. About 12 miles away over the plain, you could see the towers and church spires of an old town, very famous in this war. By a kind of accident or trick, everything was rather gloomy except this town which appeared absolutely white in the sun and immobile, as if it would always be like that, and was out of time and space altogether. You've got to amuse yourself in the intervals of shelling, and romanticising the situation is as good a way as any other. Looking at the scene, the waving vegetables, the white town and all the rest of it, it looks quite timeless in a Buddhistic kind of way and you feel quite resigned if you are going to be killed, to leave it, just like that. When it ceased and we all got back to our places, everybody was full of it. We went back that night to a new billet in a barn, so near the line that we weren't allowed to have light at all, but spread our bread and butter in the dark, or by the intermittent light of electric torches pointed down. The next night we went up to new trenches altogether. This time we weren't in the firing line, but in a line of dugouts or supports. These dugouts were about two feet deep, so you can imagine how comfortable I was. 
They put me in one by myself. It felt just like being in your grave, lying flat just beneath the surface of the ground and covered up. We had a couple of men wounded on the road up, so we went back by a safer way across the fields. A man I know quite well had a bullet entered one side of his nose and came out near his ear. They have sent him back to England and say he will remain. I'm getting more used to this kind of life, and as long as I don't get hurt or it doesn't rain too much, don't mind it at all. February 20th. The next night we went up to the trenches. I think I told you in my last letter that we are now holding a different part of the line, a mile or so north of our old trenches, worse trenches, and a worse path up to them. Last time we went up to them by a road, but we had one man wounded. There are too many stray bullets passing over it, so we went up by a new way over the fields. Suddenly, when we were going up a fearfully muddy field by the side of a wood in a long line and single file, a shell whizzed over us and burst a few yards behind the last man. I happened to be looking backward when it burst. Being night, it was very bright and looked more like a firework than anything else. We at once got the order to lie flat in the mud on our faces, and although it isn't pleasant to be flat on your face in pure mud, yet the presence of the shells makes us do it without any reluctance. March the 2nd. The first time up, we went back again into the trenches where we were shelled. This is a bad trench in which you just have to sit out in the open all night. It froze hard and all the rifles were white in the morning. The next time it was our turn to have a rest, but they gave us, the platoon, about 40 men, a fatigue up to the trenches, carrying up hurdles and barbed wire. Except for the danger from stray bullets, this is, compared to going into the trenches, a pleasure trip. You are very light, carrying only a rifle. It was a bright, moonlight night, and the way up to the trenches is a straight, narrow road. There were far too many men to carry the stuff, and four of us carried one hurdle, ragging each other all the way up, suggesting that the fat man should sit on top of it and we should carry him up. Halfway up, we met the stretcher-bearers, carrying down one of our men who had been killed during the day. They hurry along quite in a different way, when they are carrying a dead and not a wounded man. I think they break step and hurry along like lamplighters to avoid getting caught by a stray bullet themselves. It's curious how the mere fact that in a certain direction there really are the German lines seems to alter the feeling of a landscape. You unconsciously orient things in reference to it. In peacetime, each direction on the road is, as it were, indifferent. It all goes on ad infinitum. But now you know that certain roads lead, as it were, up to an abyss. For more on the life and war writing of T.E. Hume, turn to Patrick McGuinness's commentary in this week's TLS, which also features Emily Wilson looking at Plato's Pausanias alongside the life and lies of Jimmy Savile. We explore how Blake made his living, Adam Mars-Jones reviews the work of the Italian author Michelle Marie, and Keith Hopper focuses on Kynan Jones. We look at the entries for this year's Michael Marks Poetry Pamphlet Award and The Mystique of the Movie Star. To find out more about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS, 
life in every word. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.